It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, live in studio in Tempe, Arizona, Austin Peterson, and I'm joined today by my very special co-host, Ryan Weissmuller of Fintrepid Solutions. Ryan, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, always great to see you. I know that uh, you've been traveling the world and uh, doing everything you can to take it over, so I'm sure we'll get into that uh, a little bit as well. But uh, before we jump into our guest and what we're, you know, what we're going to do here today, if this is the first time that you're listening to our podcast or our radio program, Tycoons of Small Biz, this truly is a, a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. Ryan and I are both small business owners. My normal co-host, Landon Mance, is also a small business owner, and we have a history of being entrepreneurs in our families. And so we really believe that entrepreneurship and, and the entrepreneurial spirit runs right through our, our blood. And we believe that the, the entrepreneur in this country is the backbone of the American economy. And so we put together this show to really prop up the entrepreneur and the small business community and give them an opportunity to tell their story. So with that today, we definitely do have a, a true tycoon in the studio with us today. We've got Dave Cotter, CEO of Integrity Capital right here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dave, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. It's yeah. to be out here. Yeah, we're excited to have you, and we've got a lot to cover today, obviously, and, and Ryan always comes with the really hard-hitting questions, so hopefully you you, bu- you know buckled your seatbelt up real tight today. But before we jump to the business side of things, we always have our guests on the program tell us a little bit about themselves personally. So we'd love to hear about where you grew up, you know, are you married, do you have children, what do you like to do in your spare time, and, and kind of what, what brought you to starting Integrity Capital? Yeah. So I am originally from Salt Lake City, Utah, born and raised up there, had four older sisters. So I was the baby and tortured through that as well as they shared one bathroom. I moved down here in 1998 and got married 10 years ago, actually about two weeks ago to my wife, Jill. And we have two kids, Kate, who's nine and Levi, who is seven. He just turned seven. Actually, at the end of October. So I love to hike. That's one of my joys and passions. I used to play rugby for about six years. So that's explained some of the stuttering and things like that <laughs> as well. Yeah, just started this company back in June of 2003. I was going to Arizona State University and had a friend of mine that I was in a stock investment club together. And we talked about starting a business probably about a year back and forth. Uh, He wanted to start it about a year earlier. I said, I'm not quite sure. I don't know you that well. And then finally, after about a year, I was buying and selling loans from banks across the country and learned a little bit about that, got excited and said, let's go ahead and give it a shot. So I actually got fired 
when they found out I was going to do that. And so that launched me a little quicker into doing my business. So that's how it started, <laughs> even on my own devices. That's awesome. So I could get the high school wrong, but I believe that there's a very well-respected and well-known rugby high school in the state of Utah. Is that, is that right? Is yeah, it Highland, Highland High School? Yep, Highland okay. High School played rugby there under Highland Rugby. It was Larry Galwick's who coached us for six years. He coached for 35 years. He only lost seven times. So he was a fantastic coach and then took us over to New Zealand and Australia to play for about a month. So it was just a kind of a dynamic guy and just a once in a lifetime experience. So I was thankful for that for sure. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I know BYU for sure, but I think the University of Utah has a pretty good rugby team most, most years as well. Is that true? They do. We actually, when I was playing, they used to have us play the B team at BYU and it was just, yeah, it was just always challenging, but they have, they have a fantastic rugby team. So I attempted to go back and play after I got into college, but that was a bad decision. So I decided <laughs> that's not a good idea to, after your bones start to cripple away, it's probably not a good choice. Go into finance, stay away from rugby. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't blame you there. So uh, that, another tie-in. So I actually grew up in Provo, Utah. So I know exactly where you're, cool. where you're coming from. And we've been here in the Valley for about seven years. So Awesome. Yep. So welcome. Fellow Utah. Yes, absolutely. Moved to the desert. And uh, like I tell all my family members, you don't shovel sunshine. So <laughs> that, that's all you need to know about why I live here. Yes. Amen to that. Yeah. So let, let's get into the business side of things a little bit. So tell us, you know, first, just just tell us what Integrity Capital does day in and day out, what you do on a day in, day out basis, and then we'll kind of jump in a little bit more. Yeah. So we're a commercial mortgage finance company. So we act as an agent on behalf of clients who are business owners, developers, investors who are buying, developing, refinancing commercial real estate locally, as well as across the country to provide debt for them as they're trying to expand or grow their particular projects. So we, we act as an agent on their behalf, consulting them through the process. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So it's, it's really just helping them to find the, the proper financing for whatever commercial buildings they're trying to buy. That is correct. Absolutely. Only on the commercial side, nothing on the residential side. Only commercial. We just decided a long time ago we didn't want to get into the residential side. And so, yeah, we just exclusively do commercial self-storage, apartments, single-tenant, triple-net, car washes. We've done quite a bit in that space. And then just, you know, small businesses who are, again, expanding or buying, you know, real estate is typically about 95% of what we do here in town. And again, we follow people all over the country. So. Yeah. Okay. So most consumers have heard the term triple net lease, Yeah. but I guarantee you most people don't understand what that means. And when you're talking about a triple net property, uh -huh. I'm going to ask you to back up and explain what that is. Yeah. So triple net, it's funny because I remember one time I was getting introduced and the acronym is, you'll know this, NNN. You know, they use NNN. So my wife was actually introducing me. She says, NNN properties. <laughs> like, oh, gosh, my fault. So triple net is really just, you know, when you are when you get into a lease, you're either the tenant's going to pay all of the expenses, the management expense, the property taxes, the insurance, everything under the sun, or the landlord is going to go ahead and pay for everything, which is a gross lease. The other is the triple net lease where it's net, net, net to the actual tenant. So they pay everything 
such as a Walgreens when you drive down the street or a Circle K, which was right up the street, or a Jack in the Box, which is right up the street. Those are typically triple net. So the tenant is going to pay everything and the landlord just collects a check. So most people love that. And then there's somewhere in between where it's modified gross, generally speaking, somewhere in between where they're splitting the difference between those. So that's a triple net lease versus an NNN. Okay. So I've got one more follow-up question Then I know Ryan wants to jump in with something, but Arizona is Phoenix specifically, the Phoenix metro area is a large you know, city, large metropolitan area. I think we're sixth in the country. A lot of buildings here. We've got a lot of small businesses here. We don't have many. I think there's two Fortune 500 companies yeah. in the in the valley. And so this smaller office space, the warehouse, the industrial, all that kind of stuff is is pretty commonplace here. Do you have an idea, or maybe you know the statistic exactly, uh, what percentage of those buildings here in the Phoenix area are owned by individual investors rather than like a large real estate conglomerate, like a, a REIT or something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess the short answer is I don't know the statistic. I can tell you some of it depends on the asset type. I mean, if you look at car washes, you'd probably say that 70 to 75% of them are by small business owners. The rest, and I think that will transition, are by conglomerates, REITs, larger funds that are coming in to buy them, specifically just because the returns are beginning to get better. If you're talking about office, larger office is obviously going to be middle market investors to larger investors, depending on the size. But when you deal with office condos, predominantly that's going to be a small business owner that's going to acquire those just with some of the nuances that, you know, people deal with as well as, you know, retail centers are typically going to be investor related. So I'd say office, generally speaking, also, i.e. warehouse, industrial warehouse that's condoed 90% of the time is probably going to be a small business owner is what we've seen historically. You could probably speak into that as well. But that's that's been my experience generally for a business owner's industrial office, a little bit of retail, mostly is where they're going to camp. Yeah. No, I, th- I think it's a great investment, especially for our listeners. You know, if you're listening to this and, and thinking, well, I own a business, should I own my business or sh- excuse me, should I own my real estate or should I lease it? You know, Landon and I specifically, and I know Ryan does the same thing. We talk to our clients about how that can be such a great investment and there are tax planning strategies and a lot of different strategies that can be used in owning your own real estate. So hopefully we'll jump in and talk more about that. But mm-hmm. So Dave, you've had a very interesting catbird seat just with the different asset classes you see with the types of businesses that you see over the last, I mean, hard to believe it's been, I guess, 18 months now yeah. almost since since we've been in this new, uh, this new world order, so to speak. What, what have you taken away to, to date, what were what was that journey like from where you guys were sitting? And then what do you see? I think again for the listeners now, what are you, what's your perception of where the market is today? What what is capital doing? What are some of those underlying companies doing that might give some perspective to someone who's still concerned or uneasy or unsure on where we sit right now? Yeah, I remember it was March. I think it was on a Friday when there was a lot of discussion. In fact, I was just having lunch with uh, an attorney, bankruptcy attorney, we we're just talking about, it. he said, you know, how much do you think this is really going to permeate within the 
news and how long will this go? And I was dead wrong. And I said, you know, this thing is just, it's politicized and it'll be gone in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> From Friday, which I remember that Friday to Monday, it was just, it was eerie. I, I remember walking into the office and I thought something just changed dramatically and it happened fast. So my perspective, or at least the way that we approached it was just, you know, I read a book a while back called Shift and immediately just started pulling into that mode, probably just because, you know, I have a lot of gray hair now because of 2008-9. I just started going into that mode of, you know, you go red light, green light, start going red light and saying, okay, what do we need to do to pull back and prepare and slice and dice and just, you know, nibble down to, because nobody knew. I mean, I had no idea what was going to happen, but was just preparing for the worst and starting to make some decisions. So about, you know, I'd say two weeks that went on, we were just doing a lot of deliberating, discussing, wisdom gathering. And finally, we started to see some things change dramatically. I mean, we were doing a lot of podcasts and different things to try to just be helpful. But all of a sudden, we just started getting blasted with calls and just overwhelmed all over the country, probably double than what we had before. So we just didn't know what to do with it. I think it was a byproduct because the banks really just started to shut down because they were just trying to take care of internally everything that was taking place. So we just, I guess, capitalized on that. We began to figure out solutions. We were able to close quite a bit. I mean, this will be definitely hands down our best year. Uh, from last year too. Our strategy was just, you know, move and ebb and flow and try to add as much value as we possibly could to clients. So what we just started seeing was almost the opposite of what you would anticipate. I mean, people were coming in pretty fast, buying things, having a lot of cash. It was an influx in here from Oregon, California, New York, Washington. I mean, we just saw a lot of people that were fairly optimistic after probably a couple of weeks. But simultaneously, we also saw that there was, we were still having to fight the institutions that were taking obviously more conservative approach to the way they underwrote things. And I think just thankfully, it's that perfect storm where people wanted to be in Arizona. They realize this is a great state. It's a great growth state. You know, we don't have natural disasters for the most part. And it's pretty easy to get here and to all the surrounding states as well. So I think it was just the perfect storm, kind of like if you're in Texas back in 2008-9, it was almost like you were on a new planet. So that's, I, I think we just, you know, kind of capitalize that. In terms of what we see going forward, I mean, small business owners seem to be pretty optimistic in our discussions about what's going on and where they're headed. They're hiring, but obviously struggling right now with human resources, just finding capital, finding people, uh, salaries are going up dramatically. And so there's those struggles, I think, depending on the industry you're in. In terms of the asset types, car washes are obviously saturated, in my opinion, here, but they're continuing to grow. Industrial is just off the charts. I mean, the prices are outrageous. Apartments, it's a two and a half cap to acquire an apartment complex here, where in Austin, it's probably a point or so higher. So everything's just extremely expensive, but people want to be here. And so you and I were just talking about this in the lobby. We, I mean, there's just no indicators right now, at least on the horizon, that there's going to be any particular slowdown. Maybe the interest rates will 
probably slow some things down. That's that's my sense in the future. It'll probably slow down a little bit on the consumer side, which will eventually affect the commercial side. So going back to something you said, and I think something value again, valuable again for our listeners, you you suddenly went from a place where extreme uncertainty to then all of a sudden you're slammed and, and doing everything you can to support your customers. That red light, green light exercise you went through, how did you, as a leader, how did you get there? Because you got there fast. So what was the process you went through? And is there a takeaway or two looking mm-hmm. back on it now? Because again, hopefully we don't run into this kind of disruption of this magnitude again anytime soon, but businesses are going to have to pivot. Things are going to change. The economy is going to evolve. Some of this is, is just a part of, you know, economic existence. You know, Bill Gates, whenever he's addressing something, he says, I have two questions. Who's already done this and how do I talk to him? So our, my approach is what I call wisdom plan do. So my first approach is always just within a, and we call it 70% and then go. That's sort of an internal conviction we have, which means I don't need 90. I don't need 80. I need 70. And if I go anything past that, I'm probably getting into uh, too much of paralysis. So I just need 70% of information within enough conversations with people that have wisdom and insight for that particular thing I'm trying to address. And I want to gather that in a shorter period of time. Once I've gathered that information, then I can start to delineate what is it actually that I do with this so that it doesn't become just information, but actually implemented knowledge. So then I'll just start to sketch out a one-page plan of what is it that I'm going to take on short sprints that I can begin to implement and also go back and decide in a short order whether it's actually going to work. And then I just do it. And then I will rinse, repeat, recycle. So I'll go back and decide whether that was working or not. And so it's typically in short sprints. And that's how I do a lot of things, I think, just overall when I'm dealing with probably any problem. So I don't know if that answers your question. but No, I, th- I think that's a great way to to frame it, you know, it, it actually makes me think of something that Landon and I say to our clients when we're talking about investments specifically. And we, we say we put together a portfolio in anticipation of volatility, not in reaction to it. Hmm. Right. And the same is true in every business. We should be anticipating events that are going to come up. Nobody anticipated a worldwide pandemic, but we should have anticipated something that was going to disrupt the economy that we were experiencing at the time. Right. And so we've always got to be planning for it. We don't let it cripple us, right? You, you're, you're talking about paralysis by analysis. We don't let it cripple us and the way that we handle our business today, but we do have to have that contingency plan, the ability to pivot when, it, when it's necessary and to know what we would do if a few things that are pretty common, right, on an ongoing basis, cyclical basis, that we're ready for it and we know what we're going to do when that comes up. But the other thing that I thought was really critical for people to hear is it's not 90% certainty, it's 70% certainty. Yeah. And that's that's a risk that is innate in entrepreneurs. We've got to be able to make those decisions and not everybody can, not a good thing or a bad thing, right? Just not, it's just not built into everybody's you know framework to be able to do that. But being able to feel confident and comfortable enough at 70% to say, I feel pretty good about this, we're going. But then the last thing that you said was, if I'm wrong, I'm going to figure it out pretty quickly and I'm going to stop. Yeah, it's, there's a book by John Maxwell called Sometimes You Win, Sometimes You Learn. 
and then crosses out lose. And I think that's a lot of the perspective, you know, similar to what you're saying is from an entrepreneur's perspective, what you start doing is saying, okay, it was a failure. We call it a successful failure. So what do we learn by that particular situation and how do we pivot and take it and learn from it as opposed to having it cripple us? He was the book I was reading. He actually talked about how they interviewed Olympians and they would ask him, you know, what do you do when a problem arises? And he says every one of them had no hesitation. They weren't shocked by the question, but they trained as if there was going to be a problem that will happen and trained through that so that they're already prepared. And so that's a lot of what we have been doing is literally just we have kind of Friday education. So we literally been walking through, you know, when the next, you know, shoe drops, what is it that we're going to do? You know, we don't know what it is. We don't know when it is, but what are we going to do as a firm? And what are the steps we're going to take? And so people are just preemptively know that this is just what we'll do. Nobody's going to panic or freak out when it happens. And I, and I think that's so interesting and so critical because companies like yours that have had record success last year, this year, there were so many companies that just pitched their tent, went inside, huddled in their sleeping bags and were waiting for the storm to pass. And that was the wrong move because there was so much opportunity and it was, it may not be the perfect solution, but what's the right solution for right now? Let's go do that. And at least we're playing the game. 100%. Yeah, you got to be in the game and you just have to keep moving because otherwise you just die. There's just no no other way to go about it, I suppose. But that takes time to learn. Yeah. No, you, you've got to, yeah. You, you've got to be ready to go when it's time to go for sure. And, you know, to use Ryan's word, to pivot when when appropriate. I, I think all too often business owners will pivot when they shouldn't, right? And and should be, you know, persevering, so to speak, in that in that aspect. Um, but the other thing that I actually mentioned or neglected to mention was the one-page plan. Business plans don't have to be overcomplicated. I'm a huge fan and proponent of the one-page business plan. And, you know, my co-host and business partner, Landon, his one-page business plan hangs on his wall. It's Mm -hmm. in his office. It's on the wall. You see it day in and day out. He and I just met together for three days to have a strategy session for 2022 and plan, you know, what we're going to be doing going forward with our our business, with the podcast, with, you know, those sorts of things are important but you don't have to write down every single thing that you're going to do. Don't overcomplicate it. Make a framework of a plan and and go after it. Yeah, that is so true. I couldn't agree more. When I was newer, that was a concept I just wasn't going to grasp onto. So it just, you know, it seemed like complication was the way to go. And then I think as time goes on and you get chiseled, you start to learn probably not even looking at that thing and it's just sitting on the shelf. So it has to be simple has to make sense, has to be something you go back to on a frequent basis because otherwise it's just not going to get done. And we always talk about, you know, centralization, simplification, automation. I mean, everything just has to be simple or else you're just not going to do it at all. Yeah. And then you're stuck. Yeah. Quick, quick question. Chiseled like Ryan or chiseled like me? Well, I would say both of you guys are just <laughs> ripped. So I'm not, I mean, why you have your shirts on, I'm not sure, but you know. <laughs> This is a family show, Dave. It's a little early. (laughs) So, Dave, a little bit I'm curious, you know, and obviously there have been some brands in the news lately for for changing their branding and and making some splashes, but Integrity Capital, and I think you're 
you're someone in particular as a leader has has really embodied in integrity for a long, long time. I'm curious, talk a little bit about just the, the core values of your business. And, sure. and you're in an industry that's not known for sometimes the highest standards in, yeah. in, in spots. So you're competing against that. But how has that taken shape? How do you continue to model that? And how have you held on to that core as you've grown? Yeah, it's a good, it's a loaded question. And it's, I'll try it. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I told you, hard hitting. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, you know, the the life, cycle of a entrepreneur, you know, specifically me, is one where you are going through phases, I think, of dying to particular things where you have a concept or a, <clears throat> maybe a picture in your mind of how business and success needs to look. So I wouldn't say that I started off with that, even though that was the name. I, I think I generally believed that. and over some some pretty grueling crushing uh, personally, which was good for me because there was a lot of undergirding of just pride and, you know, things that I wanted that were just completely out of sync of what makes sense in life was it just took a while for me to finally learn that, you know, it's not about me and it's maybe for me and my family, but it's not about me. And there's just a big distinction there. And so over time, I've had to learn that you know, when you have integrity, part of having integrity is being willing to take personal responsibility when you fail. Uh, that took me a while to figure out in my relationships. You know, my my old business partner, I mean, I failed there in that relationship. I had to go back and ask him for forgiveness. And my ex-wife had to go back and ask her for forgiveness. You know, it was just a lot of relationships that I had to go back and realize, man, I really failed. Uh, and I think that was probably the beginning part of my journey of this real concept of integrity, where you just accept reality as it is, as opposed to trying to live outside of reality. And once I had gotten to that place of being able to embrace what is and accept it for what it is, I think that's the impetus in the beginning of growth, similar to a, somebody who has a drinking problem. And they you know, really, if, I have a lot of friends that are alcoholics and they always, I always ask me, I said, did you know you were an alcoholic when you were drinking and they always say, yeah, I did. I just didn't want to accept it. So it's the first thing you walk in AA and it's, hey, I'm an alcoholic. So I think that's been probably the beginning steps for me in that journey, probably, probably around 08, 09. It just took a lot of crushing for me to just realize, okay, this is how we want to do business in the future. And that, so we have some particular things that we're really driven on, which is, you know, call it the three Ps, which is you know, peace of mind for our clients and our employees is our one of our whys, you know, placing grace into people's hands and then pouring out for the poor and disenfranchised. So those are the undergirdings of our why. And then ultimately, we just believe that honesty, no matter the consequence. So that means a lot of times we walk away from deals. We don't take back end fees. Uh, that's pretty renowned in our industry. You go to the lender who's going to pay you the highest fees and you just jack up the pricing. Uh, just something that we chose pretty early on just not to participate in because we just didn't feel like we were being correct fiduciaries. And then I just accepting, we call it, you know, um, I raise my hand. So when we fail, we just accept it and move on. So those those are just some of the things. I don't want to belabor it, but yeah, it's, it's it's definitely a journey, I think. I think it's great to hear, hear about your why because, you know, I think the way Ryan started that is, you know, you, your industry is not specifically one that's known for being 
Yeah. Uh, full of integrity, yeah, right? right. <laughs> and it's not just the commercial side, right? It's the residential yeah. side too. And, and there's just, yeah, I could go on and on about all the different industries in our, in our country financially yeah. for the most part where the consumer has no idea what they're paying. They have no understanding of, of what the back end fees are, the commissions that are being paid, all those kinds of things. And so, you know, I, I commend you for saying, look, I'm going to, I'm not doing it for free. Yeah. I'm going to do it for a fair amount, yeah. but I'm going to let you know what that amount is. Yeah. And it's going to be on the, I assume it's called the truth and lending statement on the commercial side as well, you know, and, and you're going to understand what I'm getting paid for the services that I provide, which so, is helping you to close this, yeah. right? I do have experience and expertise to help you to get this done and I should be compensated for that. But that doesn't mean that I should get paid another two times, for example, on the back end, because I went to a specific lender that's willing to pay me that. In fact, in the commercial world, there's a lot more leniency as to the, for the ability for you to, to take advantage because there really is no truth in lending act. There's, there's no, I mean, honestly, Nevada and Arizona are probably the only regulated states where you actually have to have a license. And so it, it yeah it's it is prevalent we deal with it we we have a nationwide kind of platform with a lot of other groups and it's just it's just not you know we don't blame people for it it's just it's just not the way we chose to do business because again your motives start to kind of move and go well i could probably make more over here but it, is that really in the best interest of the the client so it's just the old you know would i would i want to be treated that way so sometimes we we fail meaning like we don't we don't do the best job we should and we just always try to go back and say, how, you know, how do we learn from that? But for the most part, we, you know, that's just our MO is just accepting things the way they are and, you know, proceeding forward with, with clients trying to develop a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think you frame it a little differently, obviously, than, than Landon and I do. But we say serve the client first, last, and always and let the compensation take care of itself, yeah. right? Yeah. If you're doing that and you're truly just looking for the best deal for the consumer, you're going to get paid at some yeah. point. Right. Just do what's right for the client and, and it all ends up yeah. working out in the end. Yeah, correct. So let's talk about what you guys do specifically. Right. I mean, we just talked about the growth that, that you've come through. And so two part question, what are the plans for the growth in the future? Mm -hmm. And part of that answer might be what you guys do specifically from a proactive standpoint. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think most consumers or other business owners think that in the commercial mortgage space, you have to necessarily be proactive. Right. Yeah. I think everybody thinks, well, I bought my building once. It's the only commercial real estate transaction I'm going to ever do. So, you know, thanks, Dave, but you don't need to keep calling me. Right. So talk to us about your proactive uh, outreach campaigns and what you're doing there and, and what the growth goal is for the firm going forward. Very early on, my experience in this industry was very much reactive, and it still is. And I just thought, man, this is a mess. I mean, just and you're dealing with big money and big institutions, and it's not like you can get rid of the problem per se, but just how do you address it up front and try to navigate it? And so we really started going through the process of saying, let's just build out an actual step-by-step -step process of how do we mitigate, address, deal with all the nuances that come into, you know, buying a building or refinancing or, you know, constructing something. So it's an ongoing iteration, but that's really what our desire is to be the most proactive commercial mortgage company in the world. And so the manifestation of that is that we're very driven by building out technology right now. 
to not to, you know, to take over, but to supplement, you know, the experience for the client so that there can be more communication, better process. And so our desire is to, within probably the next five to seven years, is to really have something that's a little bit more revolutionary in the way people do business through technology, through process, through integration. So that's a big push for ours from a growth perspective. And obviously, there's a lot of work to be done and we're doing it. The second thing from a growth perspective is we are growing in different states right now. So we want to be pretty much all over the Western states within the next three years and then all over the country, probably in the next 10 years right now. So we just opened an office in Utah. We're opening an office right now in Idaho and open up an office in Texas uh, the first quarter and then Nevada, Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's, you know, and again, from our perspective, we're very much driven by leadership development. And so we are focused on hiring college students and taking them through our process and then developing them through what we call pathways to become, you know, a leader within the organization, do the same thing. And then the third thing is we, obviously our long-term goal is to develop an innovation center for how we can impact the homeless community just by innovation, thoughts, ideas. So those are kind of the focal points for us right now. Dave, going back to something you touched on for a second, and, and it was littered through that was technology mm-hmm. and innovation through yeah. technology. I'm curious, just your your overall approach and knowing, again, you've gone back to this, you know, not being afraid to try, fail, and, and yeah. try again. There's Technology is a big theme. It's going to be with us for a while, but seemingly companies are either going way too far on either end of the yep. spectrum in their execution of technology. So what have you learned so far in terms of how to how to thread that needle and find that happy medium with what you're doing? I know you're a ways from having the finished product, but what have you learned so far? Well, we developed one before and the first thing was simple is better. That's the first thing I remembered developing a software and it was just a mess because we tried to have way too much because we were young and naive and thought we need to have way too much. People just don't want it. They won't use it. So simple is better. Centralized is better. Easy, ease of use is better. And then, you know, options, you know, I mean, some people just don't have the ability or desire to really be that involved within technology. So, you know, it's one size doesn't fit all. So we have, you know, people that are in their 60s and 70s, probably not going to do much in the way of that, at least themselves. And then there's some people on the other end of the spectrum that would rather do stuff online. So just having that ability to be flexible is a lot of what we've learned and continue to learn. And then, you know, you've probably read that book. I I can't remember the name of it, you know, talks about the minimum viable product, Mm. you know, just doing little increments at a time. So for us, that has been our approach. We just wanted to, you know, we're building out an interactive application right now that we're done. And we put it out to a handful of clients. We're just having go through and say, what's wrong with it? What don't you like? What do you like? So, you know, just not thinking, you know, because sometimes I think from our perspective, we, you know, as a business owner in person, you see things from your perspective and you think that makes sense, but it probably doesn't. You know, a lot of times, you know, people just don't see it the same way. So that's one of the things I've learned is just, just to quickly get out of my way and just get somebody else's perspective as opposed to mine, because mine's probably wrong a lot of times. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's if it's wrong. It's just that, you know, you have a knowledge base that the consumer doesn't have. Yeah. 
And so we always have to look through software through that lens and saying, what does the consumer not understand that I do understand that they need to be aware of or need to be helped through in this process, right? So let's dig in a little bit on the technology. So are we talking about helping them through the application process? Are there calculators in there to help them to know what they can afford? What, what, what does it actually do for the consumer? Yeah, I call them strands. So you have, you know, small, small business, which that became a real and still is a big problem, meaning that if, you, if you're trying to get a loan for under $250,000, it's a problem. And the reason why is because nobody wants to do it. <laughs> it's not profitable. The amount of time that you're going to spend in it is equivalent, if not more, just because and it's not the fault of the small business owner. They just don't know. So somebody has to hold their hand, walk them through it, educate them, answer questions that they just don't know and probably never will again. Chances are maybe one or two more times. So from a financial institution perspective, it's just this kind of redheaded stepchild, right? No, it's just like, well, I don't know if we want to do anything. So that strand really is one of the areas we're focusing on, which is how do we, and we've worked with a lot of institutions, say, how do we build this simple eight to 10 step process that you could walk through to just easily answer these questions and put the information in the portal so that we've done 75 to 80% of the work because you're going to have to anyways, you're going to have to provide us information. So if we can answer those questions and get to 75 or 80, then we open up the doors and the floodgates for groups that say, yeah, we, we want to do it because we want the loan. We just don't want to go through the headache. So our job is to add value by developing that and designing in a way that's easy to use, simple for them. They can see the progress that they have as they go through it. And then at the end, they're like, okay, cool. My value proposition in the end for them is, hey, you get a full package and you know maybe go with this group or not. So that's one of the strands that we're focusing on is to help guide them through it by very pointed, proactive questions that you know if they go into a bank, probably not going to get it. And it's not the bank's fault. It's just, we know the nuances of what's really going to happen at the end of the day. So it prepares them for those things. So that's just one of the examples, I think, for the technology side, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a, a ton of sense. Actually, don't, don't let me forget to introduce you to a guy named Michael Lee, okay. who's building a software pretty similar for the banking side. Yeah and could be very beneficial to you. And then also, uh, he was a past guest on the radio program and just somebody I know personally as well. Um, and then um, Richard Bird with the Yellowstone Group, commercial um, real estate broker in Utah and Idaho oh, cool. yeah. that uh, you should definitely know. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'd love to. Yeah. Ryan, you got something? So, Dave, even what you were just touching upon with the – the the underserved niche that is that small that really small business I, I think thinking about that that seems to be an underlying thread and a lot of what you're doing is serving the underserved and and for you I mean you, you talked about your why and and I've seen you know and we could probably spend a whole hour just talking about all the things you've got your hands in that you're doing to help the community how do you thread all that in how do you run what has been a very successful business up to this point not not an overnight startup uh, like 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 few think but um how do you manage that and, you know, talk about, I mean, you're a servant leader in business, but you're a servant leader in the community and you're a leader well beyond your business. How do you juggle it all? And just what are some of the things you've got your, your hands in right now? Again, a loaded question. <laughs> Again, that's a journey, but the way I try 
to approach things is to gather as much wisdom, meaning that I want people a part of the process for several reasons. You know, I have, we have a, a organization we called Unstuck where we do, we have people come in and speak once a month to deal with, you know, problems for business and, and, you know, H3 Phoenix that we started and some of these other groups. So pretty quickly, I just try to focus on my job being what is it that I do well and what should I be spending most of my time doing? And then I surround myself with people that are way ahead of me and then just have them guide me so that I can quickly delegate things that I shouldn't be doing when it's possible. Uh, given the financial constraints at times. But I would say I try to quickly just ask the question, where should I be managing my priorities? John Maxwell always says, you can't manage time. That's actually fallacious. You can only manage your priorities. Time just passes by. So what are you doing to manage your priorities, not your time? So that's really what I'm always asking every day when I come in, I'm literally just pull the whip out and just start cutting things off. I tell our guys a lot, your best friend is no. So say it a lot. No to this, no to that. You're in the business of disqualifying, not qualifying. That's really what we focus on. So the same thing goes here is I'm always asking, what do I need to cut off? How fast do I need to cut it off? Or who else can stand in my place and take that? So that's really a thing that I focus on a lot. And I'm just constantly drilling that into my mind, which is, should I be doing this? Which is setting vision setting mission, communicating that, focusing on growth plans. What are my objectives? Am I doing it? And then if I'm not doing that, which I just map out on my calendar every week and I'm constantly looking at it and saying, really, should I be doing that or should somebody else? So I'm just trying to backfill all the time and then focus on the things that I'm really good at that I think God has given me the talents to do and then just cut the things off that I know I'm not. And so that allows me to serve better in the way that I should. I always tell people it's similar if I go to church and you put me up on the stage and say, sing, the whole place is gone. <laughs> you know, it's just not going to happen, you know, but you put somebody else up there and it's like, wow, you know, that's unbelievable. So I think part of it is just journey, understanding like who you are, how you're hardwired and what are you best designed to do, which is probably two or three things. And then spend most of your time trying to do those things. That's typically what I'm doing overall. And then there's just nuances for a lot of accountability and people just, you know, my wife is always saying no, no, no. So I, I think that's just, you know, and sometimes I have to learn to say no, because as an entrepreneur, I was like, mm, that makes sense. I think I could do that. And, and so a word you used in there a lot was, was no. And you even talked about earlier with the business, how you had to learn to say no to certain opportunities not not an easy thing to do for most entrepreneurs, but it it's also a very I know in our business when we started saying no was when our business really took off and and sounds like very similar uh, you know in your in your perspective is there is there a moment you can point to or something that was a turning point for you when you realized you you had to do that or, or did did Dave break at some point or did the business break where that where that really changed? Yeah, I think. Unfortunately, and maybe not all, but most entrepreneurs, I think, finally get to the place of recognizing that they're beyond their capacity and they reach what we would deem to call burnout. And sometimes we think we're Superman and life helps you understand you're not. And so I think there was a turning point for me personally, as well as just you know, professionally to realize I don't have the capacity for this. It's not healthy. 
Um, I ended up in the hospital about four years ago with viral meningitis. Actually, nobody knows how you get it, but they, they go, do you have HIV? I said, no. Do you have cancer? No. I said, check just to make sure. <laughs> and they said, you're healthy. I said, what's the final thing? They said, stress. Okay. That was the culprit. And so I think that was a wake up call for me to just go, you know, and I've read enough books to see people that went through two heart attacks and, you know, broken marriage. And you just kind of go, you know what? No, it's time to wake up. So I think it's a, it's a, unfortunately, you know, when you, you have to get sometimes, you know, entrepreneurs are they're smart, they're strong and they're determined. And I think that's great, but it can also be a double-edged sword and be against you too, because you just don't know when to say no. So yeah, that, that was really probably the turning point. I said, no, it's time to, it's time to grow up, I think is what it is. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about there actually reminds me of, of a book called Driven. You've probably read it. It's the Larry Miller story, right? So the former owner of the Utah Jazz, which we're both from Utah, as we know. Um, And, and that was, that was it. I mean, he was a fantastic entrepreneur, super smart guy, built a really an empire. Mm -hmm. Um, But to the detriment of his own health. Yeah. He, he passed away way too early. He was not eating. He wasn't taking care of himself. He wasn't, you know, being healthy in any way, shape or form. And we lost him way early because yeah. of those things. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't know how to say no. He didn't take care of himself physically, mentally, spiritually, you know, all the things that are important as an entrepreneur to be able to take a step back. And I can say this now because we're 43 minutes in. My, my wife actually stops listening after the intro part, right? <laughs> And so she, she's like, oh, I like hearing the stories, but yeah, business, not really my thing. So I, I stopped listening then, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But uh, the headlights. Th- that, that ability to say no is a conversation that my wife and I have frequently. Hmm. And oddly enough, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur as well, but I think I've kind of figured out how and when to do that. My wife's not quite there yet, right? And, and she's not an entrepreneur by any stretch, mm. but my wife gets involved with these refugee organizations and, mm. and all these different nonprofits that are really, really important for her, but she does not know how to say, oh yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Yeah. I can do that. And she just burns herself out yeah. because she's unwilling to say no, because these things are so important, but we have to prioritize and delegate. It's a huge, huge thing for entrepreneurs to be able to do, because it's also how we'll how we'll get past that plateau that most entrepreneurs hit. I love that. My coach who's been with me for four years, John Waters, he actually is writing a book and he speaks all over the country and it's called Blind Spots. That's what he actually spoke at one of our events. And he talks about his own journey. He built a pretty large company and ended up in prison because he was so fixated on what he deemed to be success and just didn't see his own blind spots. So I think that's part of the journey is just the self-awareness to go, you know, maybe this isn't good priorities. You know, who, who do I really want to be at the end of the day? What is the definition of success anyways? I think that's really important to ask that question is what is success? Because mine was pretty out of whack. And so now that's a constant thing I have to say, well, what is it that I'm really trying to accomplish? And I think just as you get older too, you start to hopefully, not always, but I think generally you start to kind of go, okay, you know, I don't have as much, uh, you know, left on the the toilet paper roller. So it's, uh, you know, it just gets faster and you start to kind of go, okay, it's, I'm running out of time. So what are you going to do? 
So, yeah. 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 I think it's important for everybody to, to define what success is to them. Right. And, and I think, you know, everybody's heard the old adage, nobody's on their deathbed and thinking if I had just closed that extra deal or if I had this much more money, you know, I'd feel so much better about moving on to the next stage of life. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's that they want to spend more time with their family. They wanted to spend more time with friends. They wanted to travel more that, you know, it's, it's the things that have nothing to do with money. Yes. Some of them, you have to have money to be able to, to do them, yeah. but it's really about, you know, family. And you said this earlier and it, I, you know, you mentioned as a failure. So just be clear, I'm not calling you a failure because okay. of this, but I'm all right with that. <laughs> he <laughs> has failed. <laughs> not a failure. Very different. Yeah. Right. So you, you talked about, you know, your first marriage and having to mm-hmm. go back and, and apologize and, yep. you know, your first business partnership and going yep. back and apologizing. And, you know, this is, this is from maybe a name that you even know because of living in Utah and growing up there, but David O. McKay has mm-hmm. a, has a, uh, statement that he said, and it's essentially no success outside the home can compensate for failure in the home. Yeah, love that. Right. And that for me, like that's my motto, right? Like I want to live by that. And I've, I've been married to the same woman for 23 yeah. years, but it hasn't always been pretty. And there were times where I thought, you know what, if I don't make some changes, this is it. Yeah. It, it's going to end. And so, you know, it, it truly is if you kind of try to always put that back in into perspective and it doesn't have to be, you know, family. I mean, that doesn't mean everything to everybody, but for me, that's my, that's my home base. And so I, you know, yes, I, I want to build a great company. Landon and I are building a great company. You know, all those kinds of things are important and, and fun for me, but not to the detriment of my family. Yeah. There's such a, there's a lot of wisdom. It's profound because I think what happens is you get these, you know, glossy candy eyes of what can be, you know, I mean, we've all heard of the guys that get to the top and go, hmm, that wasn't what I expected it to be. It's not really as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. You look at Tom Brady, even they interviewed Tom Brady. I remember, you know, what does he have? Seven Super Bowls. And I remember them interviewing one time and they just said, how do you feel? He goes, I don't know. He just says, I don't, I don't. And I thought, wow. (laughs) I mean, guy's 45 years old and he's just incredible. Yeah. But it, I think it just goes back that that, that can't quite be it. So there's, there's, there's more to it than that. And I think it's by design that, you know, to have that balance, I think, and just really understanding, Hey, it's okay to go out and go for it. And then there, there just needs to be a time to say, okay, that's enough. You know, I think that that's the question I'm always asking is, is that enough? You know, can, can you maybe, maybe, maybe that's enough. Yeah. So that's a, it's just a good question always to ask. And me and my wife are always kind of going back and we, we have a date night every Saturday night. It's just our, you know, we kind of regroup and, you know, just do a check-in to make sure. So it's, it's, it's good to have that balance and accountability. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And since you mentioned Tom Brady, I don't know if you've seen the comparison of, you know, his first, what is he in his 25th season, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. or, you know, 24th season, maybe. And they showed his winning percentage in the first 12 years and his winning percentage in the second 12 years and said, yeah, he's really fallen off. And it's like identical, <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. The amount of success that guy's had, he and I are the same age. I mean, yeah. I could not imagine yeah. myself standing on a, on an NFL football no way. field today playing the game. I mean, it's no, crazy. No, he's uh, at one of the things I just spoke on this to our team the other day about self-discipline, leadership and self-discipline. And I was talking about him and just how disciplined he is in every aspect of his life. But 
but him accepting reality actually made a lot of adjustments, you know, later on to where his passes weren't as long. They were quicker, shorter routes. And, you know, so, you know, it's just interesting how flexible he's had to be to be successful. So, yeah, no doubt. Well, Ryan, unless you have something specific that you want to close with, I thought it'd be great to have you talk a little bit more about what you guys are doing on the homelessness front. Yeah. I think it'd be great to hear, you know, what you guys are doing day to day and, and how potential listeners could get involved and, and help with that. Yeah, it's definitely our passion for sure. We love to help the poor and disenfranchised. There's a couple of ways that we have tackled that. So we started an organization called H3 Phoenix, which I won't get into the nuances behind that, but it's it's all developing servant leaders. And so we make it part of that particular journey that we actually go fund. We just, we just do so a fundraiser. We just did it this year. We partnered up with St. Vincent de Paul. We raised $40,000 uh, between 10 of us. And then we went down and got 600 backpacks for all of the families for them to go back to school. That was just a joy to see all of the cars. There's 130 cars. It was a record year just to be able to see the families, the joy, the you know less stress for them to have to go through that, try to get that stuff, which you know for us is, you know, it's like, hey, you go down to the store and get something. But for a family that's you know running on a lower income, it's just, it's a big deal. And that's stressful. Not only can you not get it, but also, you know, you, you know, it's your kids. So it's just really a joy to be able to help. And I think it's an obligation from my perspective. If you're an entrepreneur, it's like, hey, you know what, you, you were put here. So what do you do with it? You know, some of that should go somewhere. So that's one of the ways that we really are focused on helping in the community. Another one is that we do. Uh, we have a website called hopefromfear.com, which we actually launched through the pandemic, which allows us to have different organizations. We did one through Thrive, where we built these kits, Hope From Fear kits, for people that go through Thrive, which is, Thrive is really focused on bringing, you know, foster, you know, there's foster homes, but then I thought this was interesting. They try to bring foster families back together, which I thought was just great. And so we try to help them as well. And then just, we're always just looking, we're just, we're just open to whatever we think can help that cause. We do a lot of stuff with the Phoenix rescue mission. And so, yeah, that's just our, that's our heartbeat. That's one of the reasons we exist. And we, we try to spend a lot of times focusing on it and finding ways we can get back. So. Yeah, I think, I think it's great. I mean, you know, you said responsibility and I, I don't know that every entrepreneur believes that it's their, their responsibility. Sure. Yeah. I do think we have some responsibility to give back. Yeah. You know, the, the reality is we've been very blessed, right? We have talents. You, you use the term God-given talents yeah. that give us the ability to build these organizations. And, you know, we've put in blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. We've worked hard for what we've built, but it's important to give back and to realize. And, and for me personally, I grew up very poor. I mean, I, there, there were times in high school, even when my parents were on food stamps and, you know, all those sorts of things. And so I, I'm never that far away from that. Yeah. Um, my wife never experienced that, but mm -hmm. my wife really does have a, a soft spot in her heart for the poor and disenfranchised, mm -hmm. um, you know, the backpacks. I mean, yesterday, my wife helped pack a U-Haul truck that's headed to El Paso. So there's 13,000 Afghan refugees on military bases in Texas and New Mexico right now, and 4,000 of them are children. And they're basically sitting there in tents right now trying to get resettled 
And so somebody's starting a school. And so they packed up this U-Haul truck with backpacks full of school supplies for those kids so that they can start a school. I can get behind that all day. And I don't know anybody out there that wouldn't get behind something like that. Oh. And, and you're absolutely right. There are problems right here in our own community. Plenty of people in our community that could use the extra help. And it takes us 10 minutes and 30 bucks to buy the school supplies that somebody needs for, you know, to get, to get back to school. Yeah. And I, that's fantastic. And also it helps, I think, put things in perspective as well. You know, when you go down and serve for half a day or whatever that time frame is based upon what you're, you're available to do, it just, I don't know, you just, you just, it's humbling. You just realize, wow, okay. You know, it's humbling because you realize, well, maybe I, I didn't realize how much I do have. It's humbling because probably your perspective starts to change. Maybe things you thought you were worrying about, you're not anymore. So I think just all around, it's just healthy to somewhat, whatever that looks like, it's different depending on who you are, but just, just to be engaged somehow helps, you know, and it can fuel your business too. To realize like, am I just trying to make, I sat down with one he came up, he's like, I want you to teach me. And I said, well, why? And he goes, I want to be rich. And I said, well, <laughs> okay, but why? I don't know. I just want to be rich, you know? So, and he was young. I, I mean, I get it. I used to be there too, but yeah, just, just, you know, pressing a little deeper. Like why, what, what's, what's the point? So, yeah. yeah. And entrepreneurs in general too are natural leaders, but you can also just tag along with something that's already there. I mean, yeah. you don't have to go start up an organization like you did. We can, 100%. we can use our tools, use our resources and support one that's already there, but we can definitely all give back. Yeah. hundred percent. Agreed. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So I said at the beginning of the show that, you know, this is a, a show that we highlight entrepreneurs and small businesses, but about once a quarter, we try to have a nonprofit on. Uh, we've got some lined up here in the next few weeks. Obviously the holiday season is a great time to have some, some nonprofits come on and talk about what they do for the community. But I'll just throw out the invitation. Now, if you want to come back, whether it's you personally or you and a couple of other people that you know that are running nonprofits that, that want to come in and talk about what you guys are doing in the community. We'd love to have you come and, and talk just about that. That'd be a joy. I'd love to do that. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Well, anything else you'd like us to know? I mean, tell, tell our audience where to, where to track you down, whether it's LinkedIn, website, phone number. Yeah. So integrity cap, integrity dash hyphen capital.com is our website. My number is 480-219-1205. And you can go on LinkedIn and look for me, Dave Cotter with a K. I always get the C. So it's Dave Cotter, like welcome back, Cotter. I get that one all the time as well. <laughs> By the way, I never actually watched the show until my sister said, here's the DVD. So good old John Travolta. Yeah. So that's how you'll find us. And yeah, just thank you for the opportunity. This was a joy just to be with you guys and spend some time talking about this for the business owners out there that are the ones in the trenches for sure. Yeah, no, we, we appreciate you coming in. We, uh, the conversation was easy. You made Ryan and I's job easy and, uh, and we appreciate the wisdom that you, that you shared with our audience today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to tycoons of small biz proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada. 
and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.